Blog Talk Radio. Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles continued. Cassette 3, Side 2. Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. No one who sold ardent spirits could be a member of the society, which urged the young man of the land to abstain from every fluid that had a tendency in the least degree to intoxicate. A convention of Negroes of Maine and New Hampshire, held at Portland in 1849, condemned the liquor traffic. Of all the Negroes in the United States, those in Connecticut were unrivaled in their support of the war against strong drink. The Temperance Society of the People of Color of New Haven, founded in 1829, was a pioneer among Negroes. The addresses given at its meetings were sent to the abolitionist weeklies. In 1833, the Negroes of Middletown organized the Home Temperance Society, with Jehiel C. Beeman as president and his son Amos as secretary. A year later, Hartford had two Negro temperance societies, one of them for juveniles. To the senior Beeman went the credit for organizing the Connecticut State Temperance Society of Colored People, which took place at Middletown in May 1836. A year later, at its meeting held in Norwich, the society reported a membership of 350. J.C. Beeman, the president, became in 1838 the general agent also, periodically visiting the major cities. Connecticut alone in New England had an effective statewide temperance organization among Negroes. But local societies sprang up in such cities as Providence, Pittsfield, and New Bedford. Boston, like the much smaller Lenox, had both a men's and a women's society the latter with Jane Putnam as president and Susan Paul as secretary. Membership in Boston spurted in April 1833 when 114 admirers of William Lloyd Garrison took the cold water pledge as a farewell tribute to him just prior to his sailing for England. Of the middle Atlantic states, New York and Pennsylvania led in temperance activity among Negroes. In New York State, as elsewhere, black abolitionists furnished the leadership in the movement. The New York City Temperance Society, founded in 1829, was assured by Samuel E. Cornish that a glass of water and a biscuit would answer the purpose of politeness. In the fall of 1831, the Society's agents held meetings with church congregations, signing up 39 pledges at the First Colored Presbyterian Church, 40 at the Abyssinian Baptist Church, and 119 at the Zion Methodist Church. In 1834, the four officers were familiar figures in anti-slavery work. Theodore S. Wright, Philip A. Bell, 
Charles B. Ray, and David Ruggles. Negro temperance work in upstate New York followed a similar pattern of leadership. Schenectady Negroes formed a temperance society in May 1836, following an address by the white reformer Garrett Smith. At Buffalo in the spring of 1842, William Wells Brown organized the Union Total Abstinence Society with 215 members and remained its president for three years. Another Negro abolitionist, Stephen Myers, acted in 1842 and 1843 as agent for the Temperance Weekly, the Northern Star, and Freeman's Advocate. One of the places at which he spoke, Lee, Massachusetts, named its Temperance Society after him. The meeting had been held in the town hall of Lee, with many whites present, and with twenty persons signing the pledge. In one town, if not in others, Meyer served two masters, lecturing one night on temperance and another night on anti-slavery. Pennsylvania Negroes had two temperance societies by 1834, one in Pittsburgh and the other in Philadelphia, the latter increasing its number of societies to four in 1837. In this state, the women were particularly active in the movement, Pittsburgh's temperance society being made up of both sexes. The Daughters of Temperance had 14 unions in the state, numbering a total membership of 1,500. In November 1848, two of the five Philadelphia unions held a joint meeting at the Wesley Methodist Church, at which 200 women were dressed in full regalia, along with a bevy of cold water girls in white. The two speakers were abolitionists J.C. Beeman and Henry Highland Garnet. The latter, after whom one of the unions had been named, was introduced as Apostle of Liberty and Temperance. Taking an hour and a half, Garnet portrayed the terrible effects of alcohol and labored to allure the drunkard to the path of soberness and peace. In proportion to their numbers, the Negroes in Cincinnati were unique in their temperance zeal. In 1840, over one quarter of the city's colored population belonged to either the adult society of 450 members or the youth branch numbering 180. Negro opposition made it impossible for a Negro to sell intoxicating drinks openly. Here again, much of the Negro temperance sentiment was abolitionist-inspired. In the mid-thirties, Cincinnati's Negroes had been deeply influenced by Theodore D. Weld and other Lane Seminary students with abolitionist leanings who had done welfare work in colored neighborhoods. In other Ohio communities, the tie between abolition and Negro temperance was even more evident. On an April Sunday in 1849, the Negroes of Salem held a mass temperance rally in the morning, followed by an anti-slavery meeting in the afternoon, shifting from one to the other with no change of personnel or mood. Three months later, the Negroes at Hanover held a mass meeting for the twofold purpose of advocating temperance and slave emancipation. At a statewide convention held at Columbus in January 1853, which went on record as favoring a prohibition law like that of Maine, the featured speaker was abolitionist John Mercer Langston. The temperance movement among Negroes was a compound of failure and success. Its effectiveness was diminished by a lack of follow-up and by the prevalence of Jim Crow practices within the organized movement. Like the colored convention effort, the temperance crusade among Negroes was stronger on planning than on performance.
following the periodic meetings, whether annually, quarterly, or monthly, a hibernation stage set in, with very little activity until the next coming together. There were no agents outside of J.C. Beeman and Stephen Wires. The state societies in Massachusetts, New York, and New Jersey were little more than rosters of officers, although on one occasion, at Hudson in August 1845, the Delavan State Temperance Union of New York drew an audience of nearly 3,000. A regional organization with headquarters in Boston, the New England Temperance Society of People of Color, founded in 1835, ran its course in three years. A later effort at regional organization, the state's Delavan Union Temperance Society of Colored People, founded in 1845, proved to be of shorter duration and lesser importance. Temperance work among Negroes was hampered by the attitude of many white prohibitionists who frowned upon Negro membership in their organizations. Negroes would have attended a state temperance convention at Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, in March 1835, had they not assumed that their presence would be considered objectionable, wrote William Whipper in a letter to its president. Reform organizations that were national in their reach always faced the problem of Southern reaction to Negro membership. More often than not, this problem was settled to the satisfaction of the South. There were a few instances of a cooperative relationship with Negroes. The Sons of Temperance, which had become nationwide in 1844, established a Negro local in New York in 1846 and one in Cincinnati in 1848. It was in the latter year that the Sons reached their high point relative to Negroes, appointing Charles H. Langston as deputy most worthy patriarch for the West, with full powers to establish divisions and grant charters west of the Alleghenies. The Cadets of Temperance, a national organization, sporadically granted charters to groups of colored boys. For some five years, from 1848 to 1853, Frederick Douglass was active in temperance work in upstate New York. In March 1848, he was guest lecturer at the Rochester Temperance Society with a generous sprinkling of Negroes in the audience. Along with William Allen, he attended the organization meeting of the Women's State Temperance Convention in 1852 at Rochester. A year later, he was present at the first meeting of the Women's State Temperance Society, seconding a resolution that commended the legislature for limiting the number of liquor licenses. After 1853, Douglas grew cool to the organized temperance movement, in part because the woman's rightists with whom he had worked lost control of the statewide organization. But by 1853, as Douglas was only too well aware, the pattern of segregation had been firmly established in the organized temperance movement. The Sons of Temperance no longer granted charters to Negroes or admitted them to membership. When the branch at Cortland, New York, admitted Samuel Ringgold Ward, it was ordered to expel him or have its charter annulled. The officers of the Cortland Division, members of Ward's all-white congregation, stood by him and voted their charter back to the New York Division. The action of the National Division in barring Negroes did not sit well with some of the subordinate branches. Rhode Island's division protested the order, and the Massachusetts Division threatened to defy it, maintaining that the subordinate divisions had the right to admit members without regard to color. 
1850, the Grand Division of New England went on record as condemning the National Division's no-Negroes policy. In Ohio, the Ashland County Division voted to disband in protest against the color bar, and the members of the Pollard Division declared that such a restrictive policy was tantamount to saying to the colored man, Our doors are closed against you. Some whites withdrew from the Sons of Temperance, but the latter, with one eye fixed on the South, was hardly in a position to refocus its sights. If Negro temperance advocates were ignored by white fellow prohibitionists, they ran the risk of causing an overreaction in whites who were wet, particularly the rum seller and grog shop owner. At Philadelphia on August 1, 1842, the Moya Mensing Temperance Society attempted to hold a festival and procession, some 1,200 marchers assembling with banners. Before the parade could get underway, a mob collected, spurred on by the enemies of temperance. Dispersing the paraders and tearing their flags, the rioters then put the torch to the Smith Beneficial Hall and the Second Colored Presbyterian Church. The firemen threw no water on the burning building, lest, they said, it bring the fury of the horde upon them. The sheriff and his men put in an appearance, but soon they were retreating before the mob, finally breaking into a full run. It was a bad night for the Negroes, some of them fleeing to New Jersey and others taking asylum in the police station. To crown it all, the brick building that had been used by Negroes as a temperance hall was ordered torn down by the legal authorities, who claimed that it might incite the rioters to renewed activity. Despite its setbacks, the temperance crusade among Negroes was certainly as productive as it was among Americans on the whole. In an address to New York Negroes in 1837, S.S. S. Jocelyn deplored the plethora of porterhouses in the city, many of them kept by Negroes and still more patronized by them. Yet, he added, intemperance among Negroes was not high proportionally. Joshua Levitt held a similar view about the Negroes in Washington. Temperance had done a good deal for them after seven years, he wrote in 1841, much more than among the whites in the same grade of employment. At upper-class social affairs among Negroes in Philadelphia, the standard drink was lemonade, or some pleasant and wholesome syrup commingled with water. Of the 2,200 Negro seamen who sailed out of New York during 1846, 400 stayed at temperance boarding houses run by the American Seamen's Friends Society. Individual Negroes, invariably of abolitionist bent, lent their influence to the temperance crusade. The effect of such a zealous temperance advocate as Daniel A. Payne would be hard to measure. Churches and churchgoers in towns and boroughs within his ecclesiastical jurisdiction were constantly urged to form temperance societies. Unlike most others in the business, David Ruggles refused to handle spirituous liquors in the grocery store he ran in New York in the early 1830s. Robert Fortin, who allegedly never drank a glass of liquor in his life, insisted that the 25 workers in his shipyard be non-drinkers. Unlike many employers, who would settle for on-the-job abstinence, Fortin called for nothing less than teetotalism from his workers. In a long letter describing the free Negroes in Washington, D.C. in 1842, Charles T. Torrey attributed their progress to the influence of the abolition movement. 
a dedicated abolitionist who would later give his life for the slave, Tory may have been seeing what he wanted to see. But whether Negro self-help in Washington or elsewhere was rooted in abolitionism, the two impulses inevitably converged. Negro self-help strengthened the argument of the abolitionists while simultaneously furnishing the movement with more effective workers. Mutual aid societies were designed to protect their members from indigency, helping them in sickness or distress. A Negro family, no matter how poor, was determined that no town hearse would ever drive to its door. The Sons of the African Society, formed in Boston in 1798, gave as their purpose the mutual benefit of each other, behaving at the same time as true and faithful citizens of the commonwealth in which we live. It pledged its members to attend the sick, to bury a member decently if he had not left enough money for his funeral, to help the widow and children, and to watch over one another in spiritual concerns. Ten years later, the New York African Society for Mutual Relief was incorporated with young Henry Sipkins as secretary. To the regular functions of such a society, it added an annual parade. The advent of the new abolitionists coincided with and doubtless stimulated an increase in Negro self-help organizations. In 1827, at Chillicothe, with Lewis Woodson presiding, an African Educational and Benevolent Society was formed. A year later, Providence Negroes took a similar step, and in 1831, at New Haven, the Peace and Benevolent Society of African Americans came into existence. But it was Philadelphia that outstripped all other cities, nearly one-half of its adult Negro population holding membership in mutual aid societies in the 1840s. In 1838, the city could count 80 such organizations with an average membership of 93. Ten years later, the roster of mutual benefit societies had risen to 106, comparing most favorably with the total of 119 such groups in the entire state of New York in 1844. In Philadelphia, as elsewhere, the participating members paid dues ranging from three to five dollars a year, collected weekly or monthly. Persons of affluence often belonged to two or more societies at the same time. Like other cities, Philadelphia had its Dorcas Society, a woman's organization to help the poor and bearing the name of a biblical character of good deeds. The Philadelphia group distributed groceries, clothing, and small sums of money. Some groups, like the African Dorcas Society of New York, concentrated on clothing for poor children, particularly those going to school. In 1828, the Society provided 232 garments, including hats and shoes, for 123 mm -hmm. boys and girls. The Harrisburg Dorcas Society stipulated that none of its food, clothing, or fuel was to go to drunkards, kidnappers, betrayers, and base idle persons. The Dorcas Society of Buffalo, holding that it is sometimes more blessed to receive than to give, occasionally gathered to listen to an address by an invited guest. Self-help among Negroes was closely related to self-improvement, the acquisition of useful knowledge, and the cultivation of the intellect. A young men's organization in Brooklyn bore the name Esmeralda Benevolent and Literary Club, indicating its dual purpose to combine material assistance and mental outreach. To many Negroes, life was something more than a pigfoot and a bottle of beer. 
The self-improvement impulse among Negroes stemmed in part from the general upward and onward spirit so characteristic of American society. But self-improvement among Negroes also had anti-slavery antecedents, for its advocates viewed it as a means of refuting the charge of racial inferiority while at the same time gladdening the hearts of the reformers. An evidence of this close bond between abolitionism and Negro self-improvement was furnished by the American Moral Reform Society, which, at its first meeting, pledged itself to make one common cause with the American Anti-Slavery Society. The close affinity between abolitionism and Negro improvement was illustrated by an interracial group in Boone County, Indiana, which organized a society for the moral and literary advancement of the Negro, and then proceeded to organize an anti-slavery society, thus becoming two societies with an identical membership. The leadership of Negro self-improvement organizations was invariably of abolitionist hue. The first slate of officers of the Phoenix Society of New York, founded in 1833, included Christopher Rush, Thomas L. Jennings, Theodore S. Wright, Peter Vogelsang, and White Arthur Tappan. The board of directors bore names familiar in reform circles, Samuel Hardenberg, Peter Williams, Henry Sipkins, and Boston Crummel, father of Alexander Crummel. The abolitionist Nathaniel Paul was the first president of the Union Society of Albany for the improvement of the colored people in morals, education, and mechanic arts, and Daniel A. Payne held a similar first presidency of the Troy Mental and Moral Improvement Association. Hosea Easton was the presiding officer of the Hartford Literary and Religious Institution upon its founding in 1834. Most of the self-improvement societies sponsored a series of public lectures, from 5 to 21 a season. Open to the public, these lectures were generally free of charge, as in the case of the Philadelphia Library Company, but sometimes not, as in the case of the Adelphic Union Association of Boston, which charged a modest 50 cents for a single ticket for the entire series and 75 cents for a combination ticket admitting a man and a woman. For its series of weekly lectures, the Philomathian Society of New York charged $2.50 for a season ticket and 12 and a half cents for a single lecture. The guest lecturers at Negro Self-Improvement Societies generally included a good sampling of abolitionists. Edmund Quincy opened the season series for the Adelphic Union in 1838, subsequently mailing a copy to the officers at their request to have it published. During the 1840 season, the Union's roster of speakers included abolitionists Theodore Parker, Samuel J. May, Henry I. Bowditch, John Pierpont, William Lloyd Garrison, James Freeman Clark, and, for a return appearance, Edmund Quincy. The Adelphic Union opened its 1846 series with the abolitionist politicians John P. Hale and Charles Sumner. The lecture topics, particularly those in the New York forums, were not confined to political and social issues, but included chemistry, geography, logic, and organs of sense. Such broad topical coverage was especially valuable in those cities in which Negroes were barred from attending lectures other than those sponsored by themselves. Most of the self-improvement societies provided opportunities for active participation by the members. A lecture would often be followed by a general discussion. 
Some societies, particularly those made up of young men, inclined toward oratory and declamation, with some of the speakers delivering original pieces. Others made use of the English essayists and poets, on one occasion Ransom F. Wake reading Dryden's Alexander's Feast. Some societies staged debates. At its meeting in December 1842, the Philomathian Society of Albany, with abolitionist William H. Topp presiding, listened to the pros and cons of the question, Is the human mind limited? Some of the societies had libraries of their own. Upon organizing in January 1833, the Philadelphia Library Company of Colored Persons issued a public notice appealing for books or for money to buy them. The letter of solicitation carried the names of abolitionists Robert Purvis, Frederick A. Hinton, and Junius C. Morell. By 1840, the library had 600 volumes, acquired in part by the monthly dues of 25 cents a member. The San Francisco Athenaeum and Literary Association, whose members were required to be moral and intelligent, had a library of 800 volumes in 1854. The 16 colored library societies in New York State in 1844 had libraries whose holdings ranged from 100 to 1400 volumes. The Adelphic Union of Boston, a bit better off than the others, sent its duplicate books to newly organized libraries. Many of the libraries stocked newspapers and periodicals, particularly those of abolitionist hue. Some libraries were able to announce a set schedule of opening and closing hours. The Phoenix Society of New York, for example, operating from 4 o'clock in the afternoon to 9 at night on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Circulating libraries asked that the borrowed books be returned in a week's time. To use a Negro reading room required no fee. The New York Vigilance Committee assessed its members $2.75 a year for the upkeep of its reading room, but strangers were admitted free of charge. These libraries were open to the public, and this meant that whites were welcome, a policy which bore an implied criticism of libraries that excluded Negroes, which most of them did. There was only one society made up of both sexes, the Gilbert Lyceum of Philadelphia, founded in 1841, with Jacob C. White as president and Grace Douglas as treasurer. The all-male Negro self-improvement groups, however, did not exclude women from their reading rooms or from attending meetings open to non-members. But such partial acceptance was hardly satisfactory to all concerned, and as a consequence a half-dozen women's societies were started. Leading the way in 1831 was the Female Literary Association of Philadelphia, to be joined the following year by the African-American Female Intelligence Society of Boston. But the Philadelphia women were not to be outstripped, forming two additional societies in the 1830s, the Minerva Literary Society and the Edgeworth Society. And the last of the antebellum women's societies, as the first, was founded in Philadelphia, the Sarah M. Douglas Literary Circle, which held its first meeting on September 22, 1859. These literary societies sent reports of their proceedings, along with examples of their creative writings, to the abolitionist press. Juvenile self-improvement societies among Negroes were few in number, doubtless because they were in competition with the schools, public and private. 
The strongest of these fewer than a half-dozen groups was the Garrison Literary and Benevolent Society of New York, founded in 1834 and made up of males from four to twenty years of age. The society held its weekly Wednesday afternoon meeting in the classroom of a public school until the school trustees decreed that an organization that bore the controversial name of Garrison could not be permitted to use its facilities. Led by Master Henry Highland Garnet and shouting, Garrison, Garrison, Garrison forever, the boys voted against changing the name of their society. Fortunately for them, the Philomathian Society, through Philip A. Bell, offered the use of its hall without charge. Negro self-improvement organizations strengthened the abolitionist effort, although admittedly to an extent not open to scientific measurement. Many of the self-improvement societies were influenced by the anti-slavery struggle, writes a present-day authority, and were in the main anti-slavery societies until around 1857, when they took on a more definite literary aspect. There were at least 50 such organizations. Some were short-lived, like the Saramento Young Men's Musical and Literary Society, reflecting the incurable optimism of Americans, black and white. Some were small. J. McCune Smith described the New York Literary Union as not being large, but as having at least a president and a secretary who were not the same person. By contrast, the Philadelphia Library Company had a roll call of 150. In some cases, the membership count may have been larger if there had been no admission fee, generally of $1. But a number count was not the full measure of the impact of these societies. They raised the aspirations of their own members. They lent support to the abolitionist cause, and to non-joiners, white or black, friend or disparager, they furnished an evidence of black enterprise in a somewhat unexpected quarter. Negro self-help was expressed in the movement for more and better schools. This effort, too, bore an abolitionist stamp inasmuch as school training would demonstrate that the Negro was capable of improvement and hence not doomed by innate inferiority to be a slave perpetually. In 1827, there was a total of ten Negro schools, primary and grammar, in five cities, Portland, Boston, New Haven, New York, and Philadelphia. In the early 1830s, with the simultaneous emergence of the colored convention movement and the new type abolitionists, the Negro school effort received much more attention. In the summer of 1831, Garrison, S.S. Jocelyn, and Arthur Tappan conceived of forming a Negro manual labor college at New Haven, Connecticut. Manual labor schools combined a curriculum of classical studies with useful physical labor in the shop or on the farm. Traveling to Philadelphia, the three abolitionists broached the idea to the delegates at the colored convention, mentioning New Haven as the proposed site. The delegates, laboring under the impression that the New Havenites were friendly, pious, generous, and humane, voted their approach enthusiastically, adding, however, that the trustee board of the proposed college should have a Negro majority. As a follow-up, the convention appointed a so-called committee for superintending the application for funds for the College for Colored Youth, composed of Philip A. Bell, Boston Crummel, Peter Vogelsang, Peter Williams, and restaurateur Thomas Downing, already famed for his oyster house. The proposed college got no further. 
The mayor of New Haven, Dennis Kimberly, strongly opposed it, and his stand was supported by a town meeting which voted to resist the establishment of the proposed college in this place by every lawful means. The school was denounced as a threat to the prosperity of Yale and the other educational institutions in the city. The belief was widespread that the proposed Negro school would be an abolitionist auxiliary or front. One of the reasons given for the hostility to the proposed school was its designation as a college, which bore the implications of high achievement by Negroes and their resultant pressing for social equality. But this explanation could hardly hold true for the school which Prudence Crandall proposed to establish for young ladies and little misses of color two years later in nearby Canterbury. Miss Crandall had announced this step after she had lost practically all of the students from her boarding school following the admission of a Negro, 17-year-old Sarah Harris. Canterbury, like New Haven, called a town meeting at which its leading citizen, Andrew T. Judson, strongly denounced Miss Crandall and her school. The meeting was adjourned before abolitionists Samuel J. May and Arnold Buffin could get the floor for a rebuttal. Judson and his numerous supporters urged the state legislature, then in session, to enact a law prohibiting any school from instructing Negroes who were not inhabitants of the state. Miss Crandall held out for 16 months after the passage of the law, but in September 1834 she closed the school and quit the state. A similar fate was in store for abolitionist-sponsored Noyes Academy in Canaan, New Hampshire, which in 1834 announced itself as open to youth of good character without distinction as to color. Twenty-eight whites and fourteen Negroes studied together for a year, while the townspeople grew increasingly restive. A public meeting was convoked in the summer of 1835, which decreed that the academy should be physically transplanted. On August 10th, some 300 men with 90 to 100 oxen dragged the building away, leaving it in ruins. These setbacks were dismaying to the abolitionists, but they could take comfort when they looked elsewhere. However abortive at New Haven, Canterbury, and Canaan, education for Negroes spurred by their zeal had been given a fresh impetus. The spirit of self-help took on another form, with Negroes themselves assuming the task of providing additional schools. Again, the Negroes who led the way were abolitionist activists. In January 1832, a group of Pittsburgh Negroes established the African Education Society, with John B. Vachon as president and Lewis Woodson as secretary. The school, its personnel all Negro, was attended by many of the respectable colored people of the city. During the same year, John Malvin organized the School Education Society in Cleveland, the costs to be borne by subscriptions and appeals. In 1836, Providence Negroes founded the New England Union Academy with tuition of $3 a quarter. New York Negroes established the Phoenix High School in 1836, with Theodore S. Wright as president, Dr. John Brown as secretary, and Samuel Cornish and David Ruggles as solicitors. Philadelphia in the mid-30s had ten self-supporting colored schools. Cincinnati, in 1838, had two Negro schools deriving no aid from their white neighbors. 
1857, Wilmington, Delaware, had two schools supported by Negroes, with considerable assistance from Quaker Thomas Garrett, who purchased the land site and hired the building contractor. For six years, 1854 to 1860, San Francisco Negroes supported a one-teacher school, touching a total of some 250 students. Baltimore, which outstripped any other city in free Negro population, had 15 colored schools in 1859, every one of them self-sustaining. These efforts by Negroes themselves were supplemented by white individuals or groups. In Boston in 1815, the merchant Abile Smith left an endowment of $4,000 for the Negro school held in the basement of the African Baptist Church. The Quaker silversmith, Richard Humphreys, left $10,000 in 1832 for the founding of a school for Negroes, which emerged five years later as the Institute for Colored Youth. In 1855, Homer Treat of Litchfield County in Connecticut left $4,000 for the founding of a colored school or for assisting needy Negro students, whichever the trustees of the fund decided. Germaine W. Loguin was one of the school fund executors named in Treat's will. In 1840, the Ohio Ladies' Society for the Education of Free People of Color was founded at Massillon, its purpose to elevate the Negro and thus undercut the opposition to the abolitionist movement. The founders announced a second compelling motive. Long enough, surely, have we received the taxes of the colored man to help educate poor white children, and now let us, as a band of sisters, unite in vigorous efforts to repair their wrongs. In some of the schools conducted by this society, the salaries of the teachers were paid by the Ohio Female Anti-Slavery Society. The clergyman, Charles Avery, gave an initial donation of $25,000 in 1849 to found a college bearing his name at Allegheny, Pennsylvania, to train young Negroes for teaching and the ministry. Serving on the board of trustees was the abolitionist John Peck. In 1852, the General Conference of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, meeting in New York, had high words of praise for Avery, who was present. Later that year, a more concrete expression of Negro esteem came to Avery from Robert S. Duncanson, who gave him a painting, The Garden of Eden, for which the struggling artist had been offered $800. Privately supported colored schools, whether financed by Negroes themselves or by their supporters, were obviously not the total answer to the question of educational need in a day when publicly supported schools had become widespread throughout the North. Poor as a group and taxed like everyone else, Negroes saw no reason for their not benefiting like others from the public school system. Gradually the states began to assume a grudging responsibility for the education of their Negro children. Schools attended by Negroes were all colored in student body and predominantly so in teaching staff. Such schools were invariably feebly supported in comparison with their white counterparts. The New York Board of Education, for example, spending $1,600,000 for sites and buildings for white pupils over a 20-year period, while spending only $1,000 for such facilities for colored students, a ratio of 1 to 1,600 although the school population ratio was 1 to 40. But it was not their feeble support alone that made segregated schools a prime target of Negroes and abolitionists. These challengers proclaimed that racially separate schools were relics of slavery, 
fostering prejudice and discrimination. In Massachusetts alone did the protesters crack the segregated school system, with Boston providing the most spectacular victory, although not the first. In the 1840s, the Negro School in Boston, named after early benefactor Abile Smith and supported by the city after 1820, came under increasing attack, led by Negroes and abolitionists. In 1846, a petition signed by 86 Negroes protested the segregated school, terming it insulting. The primary school committee thought otherwise, defending the all-Negro composition of the Smith School. However, two members of the committee, Henry I. Bowditch and Edmund Quincy, submitted a blistering minority report, to which they appended a statement by an even more ardent abolitionist, Wendell Phillips, castigating the city solicitor for upholding the legality of a Jim Crow school. Three years later, another petition, this one bearing 202 signatures and characterizing the Smith School as a great public nuisance, was laid before the primary school committee. Again, rejection soon followed. Negroes then turned to the courts, Benjamin Roberts bringing suit in the name of his young daughter, Sarah, alleging that she had to pass five other schools before she could reach the one for Negroes. Taking the case for the plaintiff was Charles Sumner, assisted by a young Negro, Robert Morris. Despite Sumner's learned plea, the court upheld the school committee. But its victory was but a staying action. The airing given to the case had its effect on public opinion. Negroes, led by William C. Nell, kept up a drum fire against the school, holding indignation meetings and presenting numerously signed resolutions at abolitionist gatherings. The state legislature proved more responsive than the courts or the school board. Noting that Boston lagged behind the other chief cities in the state, the legislature in April 1855 prohibited the exclusion of any child from any school because of race, color, or religion. When the new school year began on September 3, 1855, a group of abolitionists, headed by William C. Nell, went from one schoolhouse to another to see the new policy in operation. There was no disturbance of any kind, the school committee having acted in good faith despite their earlier opposition. Once the schools were integrated, the Negroes held a meeting of celebration, also integrated. The person honored at the happy occasion was William C. Nell, who received a gold watch along with verbal bouquets from Lewis Hayden, physician John V. DeGrasse, attorneys Robert Morris and John S. Rock, as well as Garrison, Phillips, and Charles W. Stack. Because she had sustained an accident, Harriet Beecher Stowe could not be present but she sent Nell an autographed copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin. At this joyous celebration, there was little mention of the Smith Colored School, which indeed had already closed its doors for lack of pupils. The admission of Negroes to white colleges, no Negro college was incorporated until 1854, was an abolitionist concern, as might be expected. White reformers were highly indignant that some black co-workers had been denied admission to colleges. Thomas Paul, Sr. by Brown, Charles B. Ray and Amos G. Beeman by Wesleyan, and J. McCune Smith by both Columbia and Geneva. At the annual meeting of the New England Anti-Slavery Society in 1836 at Boston, 
a resolution was passed recommending that abolitionists support Oneida Institute because it was the only literary institution east of Ohio which officially welcomed Negroes. Other colleges had no stated policy barring Negroes, but as an abolitionist put it, they encouraged a prejudice which created an atmosphere in which a colored student could not live. Colleges feared that if they enrolled Negroes, they would lose white students, particularly from the South. Oneida, located at Whitesboro near Utica, was not the first college to admit Negroes. In August 1826 of the year in which Oneida was founded, Amherst graduated Edward Jones, and two weeks later, Bowdoin conferred a degree upon John B. Russworm. This book is continued on cassette four, side one.